Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Donald Robertson. Donald, how are you doing? Good, Josh. How are you doing? I'm very good. Been looking forward to this conversation. And I was thinking back, well, here's what started this conversation. Uh, a little while ago, Janet Aliker, whose episode was not too long ago, contacted me. She's been listening to this, to this podcast for since I think 2018, almost the very beginning. And she suggested bringing in listeners. And so you're one of the, and so she just had an episode and you're one of the first people I thought of as someone who you more read the blog than listen to the podcast, but you contacted me. And I was trying to remember exactly when it was. I, Cause I knew during the pandemic, I remember being on the phone with you and was your wife too? Did I speak to her or just through you to her? No, I talked about her, but um, I think it was about 2019, probably in the summer of 2019 uh, that um, we hooked up. I had uh, viewed, I was doing some research on Sir Ken Robinson and I had found that uh, he had a podcast and I had no idea who Joshua Spodek was. And so I listened to the podcast and uh, uh, that's, I got interested in how you interviewed him and the interaction you had with him. So I contacted you via email and uh, kind of went from there. Yeah, I wonder if we, let's get, uh, let's bring the listeners on board. Can you, how would you describe, there are three things I wanted to start with. How would you describe yourself, maybe your professional background or how you think of yourself? Uh, could you elaborate more on, on so you, that's how you found the podcast. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the episode with Ken Robinson was just phenomenal. I mean, I could just say a question to him and then he would talk for five minutes. Each thing he said was its own Ted talk. Yeah. It was just phenomenal. And, um, and then the third thing is George Carlin, because that comes up in every email between us. Yeah, it does. And I'll yeah. let you pick the order of, of okay. oh, uh, you, you said how you found it, but what kept you going? What was the appeal? So who you are, what's the appeal, and George Carlin. Yeah, okay. So um, my quick background is um, I became a flight instructor when I was 19 years old. Uh, I became an air traffic controller when I was 24. Uh, I got fired as an air traffic controller who went on strike at 28 in 1981. Uh, I bounced around between uh, lum Sears, Lumberyards. I was a police dispatcher for a little bit. Then I got on with the federal government with the Defense Mapping Aerospace Center in St. Louis and uh, stayed there for 30 years. So have about a 35-year career uh, in the federal government. Uh, among other things. Um, during that time period in the federal government, um, I was, for the most part of that time, I was in what was called the aeronautical division, and we produced uh, mapping products for all of the armed forces. We were a combat support agency at the time. Um, our One of our uh, department heads decided that we should do the ISO 9001 program and get certified. Part of that reason was that because of the electronic content of our uh, aeronautical data uh, was used in the cockpit of uh, military aircraft. And that required us to have a quality management system, which ISO 9001 was. And so we went down that path and that's when I first started uh, researching and studying people with quality um, that were working, working in the quality realm. 
which is where I first heard about W. Edwards Deming and started to study him. And then it was just a progression on and I eventually found Sir Ken Robinson and so forth. So that's pretty much my professional side. Uh, I've always been, um, I think, a progressive. Uh, you could call me liberal in some cases, in other cases, maybe not. Um, I believe in uh, every person's right to pursue things. Um, I believe that our country is headed down the wrong path right now. And so uh, I try to remain active in retirement and talking with uh, state representatives and county council members and things to try to nudge them towards uh, more tolerance and uh, acceptance of other people. So that's kind of my uh, background and kind of where I'm at. George Carlin, I think um, if you listen to his messages in his comedic essays, they're not really skits anymore. They're comedic essays. Um, what he's talking about are all the important things that affect this country and that we have. He identified long ago uh, things that that we're now experiencing where we've gone off the track about caring about each other and things like that. So even though he um, used uh, he was liberal with uh, curse words and things like that, which turned some people off, his message was really important. And I think uh, he was a very um, he should be a very important person in the dialogue, not necessarily the swear parts, but his messages in all of his different uh, comedic essays. So that's about it. With Deming and Robinson, I, I would imagine the Deming leading to Robinson, was that through education? Because they're both educators and, and, uh, and not just like, here's a bunch of facts. Well, I look at, I look at most of the people I study, I consider educators because I think education, um, is one of the most important things that we can do. And I don't mean necessarily formal education. Uh, you and I talking and emailing, I think we've learned some things from each other. That's education, it's communication. And Sir Ken Robinson certainly pointed that out, that communication is uh, central to education, uh, both formally and informally. So I think that um, when you look, when I study people, uh, people like Dr. Russell L. Acoff or D Dr. W. Edwards Deming or Joseph M. Marshall III, a Lakota writer. Um, when I study these people, that's what I, that's what draws me to them is that they're educating people, uh, not about facts, but about the systemic life that they're living. And because I believe in systems and that everything is a system I'm drawn to people who are system thinkers, and that's who I generally study. I hope I'm not flattering myself that I, that must be part of the appeal of my approach to sustainability. Oh, of course. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you know, what you do is you live, you try to live as systemically as you can within your environment. That's what all of the First Nation people did 
prior to contact on this continent. That's what we used to do when we were hunter-gatherers long before agriculture and religion ruined our society. So um, that type of action is of interest to me. And that's why I've stayed with you in your philosophies and things like that. We can discuss a point to death and maybe we will change each other's mind. Maybe we won't. But the general action that you exhibit is living systemically. You say that you're living environmentally or you're trying to live within the environment. What That's exactly what living systemically is, is you don't take more than what you need and you put back what you can and or you save by not using what you don't need to. So um, I think that's an important thing. And I don't know very many people that are doing that. This might be a good moment for me to say, do you mind if we turn the video off? Because I'm looking at the battery on my computer. I'm not connected to the grid right now. Okay, sure. Go ahead. It'll help save the power. Yeah. So let's see. So when I'm, yeah. So now I look at the little meter of how much power is being used Mm -hmm. and it dropped like to a third of what it was before. That's great. Yeah. And so, yeah, what uh, the other third part of it was what kept you around the system? What, what episodes do you listen to or have you listened to that resonated or what posts resonated anything in particular? Well, I've got a part of my background uh, that I didn't mention. My formal education part is I have a, a bachelor's in uh, legal studies and a master's in uh, management and leadership, which I learned absolutely nothing about leadership in that course or in that uh, discipline. But um, the Constitution is very important to me. And uh, as it is to you in your podcast about the Constitution, you talked about Article 6, Clause 2, what's called the Supremacy Clause. And you talked specifically about treaties. And I thought that was very, very interesting because it points out how badly we're not following the important concepts that are laid out in some of our early documents like the Constitution. You talked about treaties and how you create a treaty with um, people that you interact with by wanting to act in a trustworthy manner so that they can trust you. Um, That's what a treaty is about, is it's a trust between two or more parties. One of the biggest uh, entities that have uh, trashed treaties is the United States government. And they did that with the First Nations people, for sure. Uh, They might have done it with the Philippines and the Panamanians and others uh, in other countries. But with the First Nations people in this on this continent, it's a very dismal um, history of breaking treaties. And it has involved some of our most um, respected individuals that have been found to be both arrogant and ignorant about things like that. So um, that really resonated with me. Your podcast about efficiency. Um, many people think that efficiency is is the goal, and it's not. Because as Dr. Uh, 
Russell L. Acoff said, um, if you do the wrong thing right, you become wronger, and that's efficiency. Efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right thing. And so there's quite a bit of difference there. And uh, all of these efforts to go after efficiency, as you pointed out with the steam engine and things like that, um, they're just misguided. And that comes back to Debbie Edwards Deming and, and all these other people that I've studied. They're all saying essentially the same thing, which is that we think, we don't think systemically. We think analytically. We break things apart and we like numbers and things like that. And if we can't count something, we're not, uh, we're not really worried about it. And as Dr. Deming said, some of the most important numbers are those that are unknown and unknowable. So um, we're just not thinking correctly. And we need to, uh, that goes all the way from parenting from the time a, a child is born till uh, we die. Our whole society is uh, pointed towards analytics, towards efficiency. It's not pointed toward the systemic life that we should be living and that we, we are living because the planet will ensure that we live systemically or that at least we die systemically. We think we're harming the planet. We're actually just harming ourselves. The planet will be fine, as Sir Ken Robinson said, and as George Carlin said. Um, they both said this exactly the same thing, probably about 20 or 25 years apart. But um, it's the same concept. The planet's going to be fine. We're the ones that are in trouble. And that's because we don't think systemically, in, in my estimation. How does it feel for you when you look at people in a system, not recognizing they're in a system, they could, it's pointed out to them, and yet they still don't think that way. Like I was just talking to someone earlier today, and I pointed out how to me, it's obvious that if I turn on my light switch and my apartment's connected to the grid, then I'm causing coal to be burned somewhere. And he was like, Josh, most people just don't think that way. And I can kind of get that because conservation of energy is something that really to get, you know, I got it levels beyond what most people do getting a PhD in physics, but also to me, it seems obvious that if there's plastic pollution in the world and I buy a plastic water bottle, then I'm contributing to that. And he says, Josh, people don't think that way. And it's really like one, it's difficult for me to grasp not thinking that way. And that's not even complex systems thinking. And two, it makes me feel, I mean, part of it, I, I channel it into, okay, this is my challenge. How can I communicate effectively? But also um, it's shocking. And I don't, how does it, how is it for you? What's your experience in that interface? Well, it feels bad because it affects, it affects me negatively personally. If our government or uh, my neighborhood, my neighbors, or, you know, anybody I interact with is not a systemic thinker, that's, that is um, a detriment, not only to me personally, trying to get things and cross and trying to reason with them, but to um, the community at large. And that's what we're supposed to be about as community. I remember I was in Washington, D.C. at a hotel 
my wife had uh, some business there in D.C., and I was talking to a sheriff that was in town. Um, a sheriff's association across the United States was visiting, and it happened to be when Trump was in office, and uh, uh, this big thing broke about um, uh, how Trump was not acting as an adult in the White House that in the news media at the same time that these people, these sheriffs were there trying to lobby for um, more money and more support. And I was talking to this sheriff from upper, upper state New York. And he was, we were just talking and I said, well, you know, sheriff, uh, a guy robbing a drugstore or a person stealing a car or a person doing drugs, they're not the problem. And he looked at me and he goes, how can you say that? I said, because they're the problem result. They're the result of a problem. A problem is a system. Just like everything that we interact with is a system, regardless of whether we want to admit it or not, it's a system. It may be good, it may be bad, depends on your perspective. Sometimes it depends on how well the system's operating, but everything's a system. And I explained that to him, and and he started to listen to me. And so we had a great conversation. I met him again, um, ran into him in the lobby again a couple days later, had some more conversation. And he ended up giving me a coin uh, that he had that was uh, talked about his county and, and had his name on it that he was a sheriff. And he gave that to me because he respected our conversation. Now, I don't know if he respected me, but he respected our conversation. And I thought that was really great. So things like that can always happen if you go at things from a um, respect, a perspective of respect. And uh, you don't put arrogance into things. You can actually affect ignorance. And uh, I remember watching Ken Burns's uh, Vietnam series and uh there was a an american general there that said uh that it's very very hard to dispel ignorance if you retain arrogance and we're pretty much an arrogant society uh we've turned into that over the millennia to become an arrogant society and i think that if you talk you you um certainly have gone and talked with people that I would never try to approach, um, the mag, some of the MAGA people and things like that. And, uh, you know, I respect you for that because that's what helps. And you've pointed that out about their ideas on the environment and things like that, that, you know, even if you don't agree with them philosophically about everything, there might be some things that you can come together and, uh, you know, discuss and then go forward with. So I feel bad, but I look at it as opportunity. I, I try to, every time I encounter some resistance or some analytical thinking, I try to talk with them. Uh, I used to be a little more arrogant myself as far as when I would engage people like that, but um, I've tried to pull back in my older age to uh, be a little more helpful to people. So. What are some examples of things that have worked? I, like I think of Demings as one of the great examples of someone who brought systems into a place and transformed a culture 
and it's hard to come up with many examples of of people who were systems thinkers, systems, I don't know what the word is, technicians or actor, systems leaders, and successfully brought a culture to think systemically. Do you, are, are there examples? Bringing a culture to think systemically, um, you know, as I said before, the First Nations people on this continent and, and hunter-gatherer societies on uh, the world over used to live and think systemically. They progressed in their uh, maturation to a point of being mature. We are not, I don't believe we are mature in this country anymore. And I include myself in that. We're not mature enough to be able to interact with the other systems on this planet in a respectful manner. You know, we kill wildlife, we, we uh, hunt bears and wolves and, and uh, elephants and all other kinds of things to uh, extinction. Um, we do a lot of things, but the planet will recover. We're doing it to ourselves. That's what we don't get. That's what systemic thinking will bring you about that. You cannot, what you experience as a problem is the result of a system. And so you look at a system. So do I know of other people that have changed people? You probably change people or have some effect on them on a daily basis. I hope I do. That's as far as leading another culture to do that. Uh, Deming's the only one I know of that has brought a um, arrogant culture to a systemic thinking. And now it's progressed back towards the arrogance side. I know that at some point um, when he was visiting Japan uh, for a dimming prize later on in, in his life, um, the Japanese admitted to him that they had strayed from some of his um, philosophy. And he chastised him for that. Uh, that's the way he was. He was, uh, I think... It, of dimming as a humanist. And I think that he was trying to, through the uh, auspices of quality, he was trying to improve the human race. So if you took, for instance, his 14 points, uh, his 14 points of constancy of purpose, of drive out fear, of continual improvement, things like that, he titled that as 14 points for the transformation of Western management. But the way I view it is that's really transformation of individuals. That's how individuals transform because you, you know, this, you've talked with Kevin Cahill and, and Kelly Allen and, and you've read Deming and you've talked with me, you know, that you cannot change a system. If people in the system don't transform themselves, I've transformed. I've no, I, there's a continual process. I transform continually. What I think today, I might not think about tomorrow in the same manner. That's good. Maybe I was wrong today. Maybe I was okay today and I I'll be wrong tomorrow, but it's a continual process of transformation. You don't just achieve something and then stop. That's the most ludicrous thought process that I can think of. So I don't think that to answer your question, I don't believe that 
many other people had an impact on a culture as as Dr. Deming did, at least not that I know of. Yeah, I haven't come up with any other, other examples either, and I wish there were more. I do too. Because it would be helpful. And for people who don't know, I'll, I'll put links to some of the episodes I've done on, on W. Edwards Deming. And just briefly, he was, well, the part that we were talking about here is that after he did a lot of transformative work in American industry during World War II, in 1950, he ended up helping with the census in Japan. He'd done some census work in the U.S. Japanese industry had learned about what he'd done in you know, 1950 had been bombed out and destroyed and they asked him to help. And he helped transform Japan from bombed out to someone would say dominated, but serving the world in several industries. They went from being known for cheap junk to high quality, low cost, durable goods. Right. And I think they credit him a lot for that. But there's more to that story, Josh. There, it, Dr. Akoff pointed this out. You look at the the systems around the world. You look at um, the quality of car manufacturing and Toyota and and you know Mitsubishi and Datsun or now Nissan uh, is had had been well known for that back in the 70s and 80s. Um, but look at what the cost is. If you look at the cost, that's not very good. Um, Dr. Akoff pointed out that when you look at congestion and uh, air pollution in cities across the world, Mexico and Santiago and New York City and, and all over the place, these large metropolitan areas where kids can't go to school um, necessarily every day because of the lack of, of clean air. And then you talk about the quality of the car. Well, the quality of the car is inefficiency. The effectiveness of the car is why do you drive it as much as you do? And you've pointed this out a number of times. Why do you fly airplanes? Why do you uh, have diesel locomotives? Why do you do this? Why do you do this? Can we cut those out? Absolutely not. But those are the problems, or no matter how you look at them, they are causing other problems. And that's where systemic thinking comes in, is you cannot uh, have the most efficient automobiles in a um, gas engine or a diesel engine and not affect the planet in other ways. So we can give all the awards we want to the Japanese on this and that, but what cost is that to society? So yes, we need more efficient vehicles, but we need less vehicles. It's like energy. I drive across the panhandle of Texas going to New Mexico to visit Santa Fe, and I see nothing but, uh, and you can see this anywhere in the United States, I see nothing but these huge wind turbines. Well, number one, aesthetically, it's ugly. I don't like that, but that's not helping us. All that's doing is allowing us to increase the amount of energy we're using. All those wind turbines are not reducing the amount of energy we're using, which is what you're trying to do. You're trying to focus us on reducing the dependency on energy, not to necessarily reduce the dependency on oil or gas or anything like that. It's all related. It's the energy consumption that's the problem, not 
whether you use gas or oil or electric or wind or turbine um, ocean waves or anything like that. It's, it, it's not a solution. Yeah. I'm working on my language to refine it a bit here. Cause it's, it's not strictly energy because solar energy photosynthesized in plants that becomes vegetables and fruit for me to eat. That's fine. It's more pollution. And when you're talking before about other cultures, which we'd often call indigenous cultures, they have systemic thinking. I think you have to work with systems. You can't just learn it from the blackboard or, or, or books. You have to experience it and know that, oh, if I push it here to the left, a day later, that other part over there moves to the right. Like you wouldn't expect that. But once you work with the system enough, then you get that. Mm-hmm. I mean, an example I often use is with a bicycle, I push down on the pedal and the wheel makes me go forward. That's a fairly simple mechanical system. But I think that other cultures that do think systemically, ones that have been around for 50,000 years, 100,000 years, and not just think, but act and behave and believe systemically and cultures, systemic cultures, I imagine that they must have gone through a lot of trial and error and probably retry and re-error at various times. And there must have been other cultures that didn't make it through that process. And the reason I bring this up now is talking about our culture and pollution, if we have to go through trial and error, if our error is we put so much pollution in the world that it will take thousands of years to get down to levels where birth defects aren't normal and uh, sperm counts aren't dropping globally. You know, we, if we make a mistake, it could be some big global thing that lasts much longer than lifetimes. Although other cultures may have um, been wiped out. They might've wiped themselves out that we wouldn't know about them because they weren't the ones that survived. Well, and we're one of those cultures. Humans are one of those cultures. If we think that we're going to be around on this planet forever, I've come in the last uh, couple of months, I've started thinking about how come we're not so smart systemically. And I'm starting to develop a thought process about we're distracted. We are a distracted society. We're distracted by all kinds of things, money, elections, uh, each other, the weather, climate change, science, all this stuff is distracting us because we've not, we don't understand how to bring that information in and think about it systemically. We think about it analytically and we say, oh, well, this is really bad over here if we do this and it's really good over there if we do that. Well, okay, so we have, we have good cars that, that are efficient. Is that really enough? No, it isn't. It's not helping the problem, okay? And that's what Dr. Deming and all these other people have tried to point out to us over the years is that you can improve every part of a system but you're not improving the system. And quite often you can hurt the system by improving a part of it because a system doesn't run on the actions of the parts separately. It runs on the interactions of the parts. That's what you're finding out when you talk to other people with much different perspectives. 
is that when you interact with people, you have a different experience than if you just act on your own and say, we shouldn't pollute anymore and we shouldn't, um, we should live more environmentally. That's not interaction. That's action on your part. But when you interact with people and you talk about things and about how their perspective is on this and that, and then you can start to find uh, ways forward and go towards a solution. You may have a, uh, an objective that you want to achieve, and you may have goals along the way that you want to achieve that, but um, you may never get to that final objective. But as long as you keep working towards, that's what you brought up um, about continual improvement in your Kitty Hawk moment podcast is if you're not continually trying to improve, then you're not helping the system. But what is improvement? And as Dr. Deming pointed out, if there were a fire in a building and you somehow put out the fire in the building, you didn't improve the building, you put out the fire. So improvement You have to understand what improvement means, and it doesn't mean bringing the system back to where it was supposed to be. It means improving the system, and you can only do that if you improve the interactions of the parts, not the parts separately. And yourself, you have to, as you said before. That's transformation, absolutely. And this is, you know, I I, what I just spoke about was everything, you know, things that I learned from Dr. Uh, Acoff and from, um, you know, reading about the experience of the Lakota uh, from Joseph M. Marshall III and all these things, it's all the same type of thing. But because of our education system and the system that we have, we're taught only to stop at analytic thinking. We're not taught to go past it towards understanding and towards wisdom. That's where you get the systemic thinking. I can't tell you how much I wish that many of the people I talked to said things like what you're saying, because so much of what I'm saying is they say, Josh, you can, you can pollute less, but all you're doing is making your life worse. You're, you're missing out and your contribution is so little like this guy, I'm on someone's mailing list and he and I rib each other. So uh, he emails me that, or emails this whole list about some place where the snow is melting and a big disaster happened. And I wrote back kind of jokingly because this guy flies a lot. And I wrote back, oh, it's too bad. There's nothing anyone can do to reduce our contribution to global warming. You know, it's too bad we can't stop Mm -hmm. flying. Mm -hmm. And he writes back, yeah, did you ever find out how much flying contributes? It's like 1%. From a systemic perspective, like that totally misses the Mm -hmm. boat. Mm -hmm. Like 1%. And also from a personal responsibility perspective, I, I wrote, I'm actually going to do a post on this of, I made up a little parable, the emperor's new cigarettes. So imagine someone has develops a new cigarette. When you smoke it, you get all the pleasure, say it's someone who enjoys cigarettes, you get the pleasure of smoking a cigarette, but there's a, a twist to it. Instead of causing cancer in you, it causes cancer in people who are poorer than you. Mm-hmm. So imagine going to someone who's smoking the cigarettes that cause that cause other, that give that person pleasure, but other people suffer. And you say, you know, you're causing other people to suffer. And they say, yeah, but not that much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what he said. Yeah. It's, it's a shame that, um, and that comes from, you know, 
again, a lack. If you're going to think systemically, that infers that you are going to think respectfully, that you're going to not be arrogant, that you're going to actually look at the system and the interactions and see what can be done to improve the interactions. And every interaction has another interaction. And and so it's difficult. You can't affect a system on your own, even Dr. Deming. Whatever Dr. Deming told the Japanese was correct. But without the Japanese following him, Deming would have done nothing. So, you know, a system is the interaction of the parts. And it's that simple to understand, but it's very difficult to look at uh, because a lot of people say they don't have time. I don't have time to think about that. Okay. So you have time to do the same thing over and over again incorrectly, but you don't have time to sit down and think about it and do it once by yourself, you know, the first time. So it's that uh, lack of systemic thinking that I think has really caused a lot of our problems in everything that we have, the environment, the government, um, our interactions with each other in the community, the use of energy, all those kinds of things. I don't think the word values has come up. I kept expecting you to say it. Did How does values fit into this? Well, the Lakota people I've studied uh, and the Dine people, which um, white people call America, um, Navajo, uh, all of these societies had uh, part of their maturation process was not to live by laws, but to try to live to ideals. And uh, the Lakota, for instance, um, had a set of uh, virtues, and they included generosity and love and perseverance and wisdom and bravery and things like that, that they tried to uh, live up to. And people in their societies, when they lived up to a lot of them, were recognized for living up to them. They weren't made um, some chief or head man or uh, um, medicine man. Those were those were callings. And so because of that, those values, when you act on values, that's when you can become a leader. A leader doesn't need uh, followers. A leader, I believe that leadership is situational. People see things occur and they act out of their capacity and their ability to help other people. The one thing that a leader needs is a beneficiary because leaders are benefactors. And Kelly Allen talked about you and he talked about that, about servant leadership as servant leadership. The concept of that is ignorant because leaders do serve others. That's what a leader does. It's not a separate type of leadership. Leaders are benefactors they need beneficiaries, whether the beneficiaries ever follow them or even know them. And one of the most recent examples, uh, well, it's not real recent, but uh, is what happened in Tiananmen Square in, in 1989, where uh, 
person stood out in front of a line of Chinese tanks and stopped him. He was leading at that point. Nobody was following him. <laughs> People were getting killed. But he halted the column of tanks. He saw a situation and he became a leader. He took the lead and he did what he could. And it was a small segment of time, but he did something that was leading. And people don't even know who he is anymore. I mean, they don't, they never did know who he was. Uh, the Chinese government wouldn't acknowledge who he was or what they did with him. So, you know, it's when you put others first and you don't care about your personal outcome. That's what leaders uh, do, I think. Well, it makes me think of an example I use rarely, but should use more of the first women to wear pants in the West. Must have, I've looked it up and there's no like this one woman did it first. But I imagine the vitriol and derision they must have faced. And perhaps there was a sense of doing what they felt was right. But there must have been, I, can't, I can only imagine there was a lot of sense of we're trying to change the future. And I don't know a woman who doesn't wear pants. They've affected billions of people. And it was in some ways a simple act but I think it would qualify as, as leadership in the same sense. Would you say? Yeah. I, and you know, that brings to mind, um, you know, you talked about your Kitty Hawk moment on one of your podcasts. Um, when you think about the Wright brothers, uh, they certainly were leaders. They did things, they paid for things out of their own pocket. They didn't have uh, the greatest scientists in the world uh, following them like Samuel Langley did, who, was not successful in powered man flight. Uh, they continued on their own. They took others, um, Lithenthal's um, information about aerodynamics and things like that, and they found out that that wasn't correct, and they had to find their own way about the forces of flight and things like that before they were able to be successful in powered man flight. They were certainly leaders. They didn't have anybody following them but they felt that it was possible. And that's where Sir Ken Robinson comes in with the imagination uh, and curiosity and creativity. You know, um, Sir Ken said that, you know, creativity is born out of curiosity and imagination. And uh, that's exactly what the Wright brothers um, exhibited is they exhibited leadership. They took, they did what they could about a situation that, that wasn't even occurring. They made the situation occur, aviation. And billions of people have been affected by it. And I'm sure that they didn't have the environmental impact um, concern at, back then because they weren't aware of that. Uh, had they been, I'm sure they would have worked towards trying to reduce the, the impact. But they were leaders. And now other leaders need to find out, as you have said uh, in some of your other podcasts about reducing the amount of flights or, um, you know, having, uh, trying to have um, cleaner jet engines and things like that, that helps. But what is the point? What's the objective? Those are goals to meet what objective. 
And when you talk about environmental action, all these environmental uh, people are, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. The Sierra Club and uh, the National Wildlife Federation and things like that. Um, the World Wildlife Fund, they're all trying to do something, but I've never heard them talk about what does a planet look like in 2022 if everybody's living systemically on it. What does that look like? What does that mean? Do we have to cut our energy in half? Do we have to cut it in a quarter? Do we have to, you know, stop using fossil fuels totally? Uh, what does that mean? I've never heard anybody actually say that. Uh, one person that came closest to that was David Attenborough talking about life on, on this planet. And he tried to explain things that we could do to help achieve that sustainable and systemic thinking and living. And um, so people can do things like that, like you're I don't eat meat anymore because of that. And why don't I eat meat? Because I don't believe that the chicken should be the most populous bird on the planet. I don't think that's natural. I don't think uh, all this cattle and, and all these pigs and sheep and things, uh, they might are supposed to be there, but not in the quantities and not take up the large landmass space that these ranches and farms do. So you know, when you hear somebody actually articulate uh, what something's supposed to be an objective, then you can start to transform yourself to work towards that objective if you think it's worthwhile. I want to change direction for a bit, if you don't mind, that most people, I'm surprised to find that when I ask them what episodes they like, they it's always guest episodes. And you've been talking a lot about solo episodes. Like Janet, when I asked her, she says, oh, I listen to some of the solo episodes, but not really. It's, she really likes the conversations. Mm -hmm. We've been mostly talking about solo episodes, which I'm glad to hear because I like doing the solo episodes. Well, I like doing all episodes. Mm -hmm. What about guest episodes? Are there ones that have resonated with you more or less or that you've come back to or meant something more? Well, as I said earlier, um, you know, Kevin Cahill, Kelly Allen, uh, who were associated with Dimming, um, Sir Ken Robinson. There are some episodes I don't care much about that were guests, but um, you know, I I don't I haven't looked at that many of them because I don't I'm not in a place in my life where I sit down and listen to podcasts a lot. So I do when I see your newsletter come out and I see that you have certain uh, podcasts I. If I see something that interests me, I do that. And it's not necessarily a guest. It's, it might be like you say, the solo ones. So um, I don't really have a favorite type, whether it's solo or guest. I just look at ones that have, are in interest to me. All right. And now, actually, we're coming up on an hour. And I wonder if you're interested in doing the Spodek method. You know, I, I wanted to talk about that. And sure, I don't mind that. Uh, I told you in an email, I didn't know what that was. And so when I yeah. listened to your 500th uh, podcast, here's what I got out of it. And as far as the Spodic method, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, 
you find a personal motivation of some someone's personal motivation. You ask them to do something towards that motivation. Uh, you might ask them later on, how did it go? And then what else can they do? Is that about it? Or am I missing something? Yeah, that's it. In, in a high level, sort of in the way that you might put out sheet music and say, this is what the music is. Mm-hmm. And hearing it and experiencing it is a different story than knowing that it's there. One of the ways that since then, you know, I'm working with this big oil company that I can't name. And one of the things they need from me is for me to be able to consult with them is they need to know that my leadership work meshes with their leadership style. So they sent me a bunch of their leadership stuff. And I started adopting some language of theirs because it's very common, but of a, um, a personal transformation or mindset shift followed by a path of continual improvement, which I'm sure you've heard that language many times before. And to me, now the Spodic method is like that mindset shift. It ha- it, it, and it's for many people, it's the first time that, that they're not experiencing environment or sustainability as an obligation or a chore or something deviating from progress, a step back from progress. And oftentimes they experience it as, oh, this is I, this, it's, I, I, I like this. And they tend to want to do more after having done it, as opposed to feel like, you know, the quintessential contrary case would be someone who says, look, what I do doesn't matter. I went without straws for a week and all that happened was the waiter brought out straws and I told him to take it back. And the waiter was like, well, we're going to throw it out anyway. You might as well use it. And then at the end of the week, the world is the same, but I was embarrassed. I've proved, see, see, I proved that what I do doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So that's acting. Usually people don't have strong feelings about straws. It's extrinsic to them. It's not really meaningful. They, they're just doing what they were often coerced or cajoled into doing something. Whereas this is intrinsically motivated. Yeah. And as I looked at, as I wrote that those four things down about what I derived the Spodic method to be, here's what I thought about. I look at these, I look at connections because I look at interactions. And while you may not have personally interacted with Dr. Deming, your systemic thinking interacts with Dr. Deming. So this, the Spodic method looks very much like the dimming cycle. Yes. Or as he said, the Schuert cycle, or as other people have said, the scientific method. You know, his, the dimming cycle is plan, do, study, act. Um, planning is what I said that the Spodic method would be finding a, a personal motivation. Doing is to do something towards that motivation. Study is when you ask a question, how did it go? And acting uh, is what else can you do? Uh, I would also say that acting could be interchanged with adapting. Because when you plan, do, and study, then you can adapt, uh, which is an acting. So, and if you look at the scientific method, which I know that you are familiar with, it's the same thing. And so that is an essential element, a part of the system of uh, continual improvement is to go through that cycle continually. So I think it's, it's great. Let's give it a shot then. So I'll do it step-by-step. 
is the environment something, I, I always start with this, is the environment something that matters to you? Is it something that you've looked at and decided it's worth acting on? I'm not going, I'm not, I may appear to be dancing around this, but I want to tell you how I feel about that. I feel that the environment is not separate from humans. So when I think of the environment, action on the environment, I think of actions on humans and the way humans think and the way humans act, because that is part of the system. You cannot separate the two. They interact. So um, is the environment important to me? Absolutely, because I'm human. <laughs> so that's the way I look at it. And when you, so when you act and when you feel it's important to you, what, well, first, uh, you know, there's, when I ask people about the environment, the first thing people jump to almost all the time is what they've read about in the papers, the front pages, it's, you know, storms are rising and sea levels are rising and things like that. And I want to put that off to the side because that's projections about the future. That's not, that's reading about stuff. Mm -hmm. When you think about the environment, like what's, say you interacting with the environment directly. And I don't mean just, I'm trying to, I, I should be very precise with you that I don't just, by environment, I don't just mean like the table and chairs around you. But nature, right. the part of the environment, you know, the natural environment. Sure. Yeah. Have you had experiences in the environment that have stuck with you or said, this is something I want to protect or keep the way it is or something like that? Absolutely. Can you share a couple examples? I mean, I do that when I walk my dog in the park, uh, we see a box turtle or we see a turkey vulture or uh, a butterfly um, or a snake. And um, I am in awe of their existence and how they are interacting with their own environment and how I am intruding on it. I see deer or fox in my neighborhood. I hope that they don't get run over. I hope that they don't starve. Um, people would say, well, we, we need to kill those deer because they're overrunning things. Well, uh, now you're thinking about the action of the deer and not the interaction they have with the rest of the environment and yourself. So, yeah, I, I see those things. Uh, when I was out in um, the Grand Tetons a couple of years ago, before I started communicating with you, um, my wife and I would go out in the evening and there would be people pulled off the side of the road watching the elk move and watching for wolves or bears to see it, how that interaction went. I um, enjoy looking at nature and seeing it action. And I can see why in uh, hunter-gatherer societies found spirituality in much of nature. It wasn't a religion, it was a lifestyle, as Joseph M. Marshall III said. Spirituality is a lifestyle, it's not a religion. Religion, in my mind, has hijacked spirituality. So I try to, when I get out in nature, feel and see and feel the spirituality of what's going on around me. I heard, by the way, thank you for sharing, because I was in the Grand Tetons when I was like eight years old, long time ago, but you brought me there. And you mentioned awe, you mentioned enjoyment. 
Can you name some of the emotions that you feel in these moments? Well, I feel closer to being myself, what I think myself would be. I feel calm. I am in awe, as you said. I, I do feel joy. Uh, and the joy is, is not only in what I see, but what I feel myself. I feel calm. I feel connected. Um, just like when I see an area uh, of the forest that's been trashed by loggers or burned uh, because of a forest fire, uh, some forest fires are good. That's part of nature. So if I can determine that the, the fire was uh, part of nature, that's fine. If I see that it was based on negligence, then I don't feel good about it. But when things are, when I see the, the animals and the um, geographic elements and the astronomical elements and the water and things like that, I see it as a connection. It, it brings me back to, um, it validates the fact that I believe I've been right in thinking that systemic thinking and living is the right way to go. Based on these feelings that you've described, the awe, the connection, the calm, the connection with yourself, the next step would be, well, I invite you, if you want to go for it, to think of something to do to bring about those emotions in something with three constraints, something that you're not already doing, something that you do yourself, not leading others to do it, although you can just as long as you're doing something yourself as well, and something that you, you don't have to measure it, but something where at the afterward, there's some physical component that you can look back and say, well, I left things better than I found it. And if you're up for it, you know, and it's not to fix the world. It's to manifest, to bring about these feelings in a way that you're not already doing. Some people decide to change their whole lives at this moment, but most people, it's more of just trying something out. Do you want to give a shot? And I should mention that most people at this stage, if they want to do it, they haven't thought of what it is. That takes a bit of back and forth. But usually I, I've gotten pretty good at it that we, come up with something. And usually the person afterward is like, oh, I, I've been meaning to do that for a while. Mm -hmm. Want to give it a shot? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things I constantly, I, I want to work on and I don't always get a chance to, is to live life less fearfully. I try not to be fearful about a lot of things, but there are still some things that I may be fearful of. So what I might be able to work on is trying to meet some of those fears um, of really being out in nature, for instance, and running the risk of, you know, I, I have this thought in my head that I would love to encounter a wolf in nature and hope that I could um, come away with a connection instead of a bodily harm to myself. Uh, that I wouldn't get afraid because the First Nations people in this continent lived, and other continents as well, lived with wolves in, in the vicinity and were not scared of them. 
they had no fear. And so I would like to try to make that part of my life in whatever um, encounters I have. Listening to that, that sounds to me very intriguing. And if it's something that could be uh, reduced to practice, it would, and you mentioned you're not, you haven't already done it. The, it would be you doing it. The leave better than found it. And if you're, if, if you're not doing something else that normally would have, I don't know, watching TV, hmm. then it would fit the third uh, criterion. Is it something doable? Is it something that you could do? Well, I, yes, I, I hope that I have done some of that to this point. And again, that comes back to the belief that I cannot help the system if I don't personally transform myself. And so um, facing and getting rid of fears is something that is very important to me in everything I do. And, and so I try to continually do that. That's part of my continual improvement of myself. Um, as George Carlin said, you know, life ought to include a little risk, you know, take a little risk once in a while. And so I'm not going to go uh, snowboarding or anything like that off of a mountain, but um, just putting myself more into nature and getting away from civilization uh, is something that is of a prime interest to me and something I, I always like to do. I always try to do. Did you see my post the other day that I went bike camping for the first time since the eighties? I did. And the day before I went out, I was talking to a, um, a client and we, the, the topic of food came up and I was going to keep it in my tent. And he was like, Oh, rookie mistake. It's like, you got to get a rope and hang it over a tree and have it at least 20 feet up a tree that is not easy to climb. So when I'm camping, all I could think about is bears. And I was like, I'm never going to fall asleep. But of course, no bears came and no, no not, I kept the food out of the tent far away. Mm -hmm. And not even the raccoons bothered it as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when you're talking about risk and like, part of me is like, oh man, I hope I don't get the first guest eaten by wolves. <laughs> I would not... <laughs> I feel bad about that. Well, I don't think there's much chance of that, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a uh, human encounter with nature is very important to understand and to try to include in your life, I think. And uh, whether it's walking in a garden or in a park or out in Yellowstone or whatever, it's, it's putting yourself at risk of interaction and not being afraid of that interaction. Things are going to happen the way they're going to happen. And no, you're not going to go walking with wolves or dancing with wolves or whatever. But if you're respectful, I believe if you're respectful of other, uh, as the Lakota thought they were other nations, if you're respectful of animal nations, I think they might be respectful of you. Well, it sounds like a pretty clear specific goal would you be willing to come back and share how it went and if so how long would it take if we scheduled a second conversation for you know when could we schedule a second conversation if you're up for it to share how it went 
I, that's hard to answer. I, I don't know. You know, my life is going on as as it goes on. And, uh, you know, if the experience comes up and I'm able to do that, I will do that. If it, you know, I, I don't, um, I would love to go out into the wild a little bit and, uh, you know, but whether I first finding the wilderness is gone. I mean, it's gone. There is no more wilderness. There might be some wildness left, but there's no more wilderness. And so even if you go to the Tetons or Yellowstone or any of the other national parks uh, or national refuges or whatever, it's hard to get near nature where it's actually just nature and i don't know if it's possible anymore to do that i i will try to put myself in other situations whether it's a snake or a wolf or a bear or whatever and and report back to you how um how it went but uh i i can't it's hard to do a timeline i mean i um maybe a month or so yeah, I should clarify that for my purposes, what I mean is the parts outside of your control are outside of your control. So if you go out there and you don't meet a wolf or even another animal that you know that you haven't already interacted with, just hearing what the experience was, I predict will have there'll be something meaningful, even if it wasn't, you know, interacting with the wolf. Yeah, the attempt to try to do that is what you're looking at, and I guess so. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, uh, so give me give me a month or two. All right. So after we record, but before we hang up, let's get out the calendars and schedule a second one. Okay. And I propose then picking up where we left off on the conversation, combining with how hearing how it went. But before wrapping up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth covering right now or any questions I didn't ask? Well, there's probably a lot of questions you didn't ask, and there's probably a lot of things I didn't say uh, that I probably should have. But uh, not right now. I think we've got time and we can always revisit things like that. And, And I think that's one of the things that your podcasts do is it presents other perspectives. and. um I remember listening to Rick Steves, uh, the guy that does the PBS European tours and things like that, and, um, and he's, his shows are on PBS. Um, he said the most important thing you can bring back from a vacation is a different perspective. And I think that's uh, a very important element in all of our lives is that any interaction we have, if we can look at it from a different perspective and, and allow that to filter into our brains. I think we've accomplished something at that point. Well, I hope that's happened a bit here and I hope it's brought that out in others. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I just, I I said, I have uh, certainly experienced uh, a different perspective every time I talk with you or email you or read your blogs or listen to podcasts. And uh, my point, I guess, was that, you know, you have to, um, that anytime you can have a different perspective from an interaction, uh, things should be better than what they were. Well, I'm honored and flattered. And uh, Donald Robertson, thank you very much.
You're welcome, Joshua. I, I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.